Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. The last time, and I'm sure you've come across the stories over the last couple of weeks, the last time, maybe the only time, really, the only time prior to now, that a nuclear war was brought forward by a national leader as a possible a national leader who actually has nuclear weapons, in this case at his disposal, the last time was 1962. And it had to do with uh, the Soviet Union under Nikita Khrushchev placing medium-range missiles into Cuba, missiles that could easily reach the United States. And the Kennedy administration said, not going to happen. Get them out of there. Meanwhile, the Russians kept bringing more and more ships from the Soviet Union into Cuba to service those missiles and get them ready. And the Americans um, laid down, literally laid down the law and said, turn them around, get them out of here or else. And Khrushchev initially wasn't having any of that. So these two superpowers, both the nuclear weapons, got closer and closer to each other um, and conflagration seemed possible. I was in my, I think I was in my first, first year of high school. And they were telling us what to do in case there was a nuclear war. It wasn't a case of, uh, you know, jump onto the desk. They told us that when we were five years old. But it was more, you know, try to find a part of the building that is supported, words to that effect. And eventually, as you know, the uh, Soviets backed down and took their missiles out, turned the ships around, and Kennedy won the day. So while all of this was going on, my next guest was very much privy to the situation. George Cortez is my guest. He's uh, an architect, and he was Fidel Castro's interpreter during those years. George, thank you very much uh, for joining us. How are you? I'm fine, Roy, and thank you so much for having me in your program. Well, it's a it's it's a pleasure to speak with you. When I'm talking about this particular situation, and I'm just talking about it from the perspective of somebody who's read about it and was peripherally there as a kid when it was taking place, when you hear it brought up, what are the memories you have? What what what's the first thing you think about? Well, Roy, this is a topic so big that we could be talking until Christmas, but I know we have time limitations. Uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis was the end result of a sequence of uh, events of international impact that started in 1959. Um, um, you mind if I say, what led to the, to the missile crisis in Cuba? Sure. Um, uh, before, before 1959 and the revolution, I was a university student, a school of architecture aligned and, and deeply involved in the directorial revolutionario which was one of the two factions controlling the riots and all the problems, uh, trying to overthrow the Batista regime, had to go. So that is before. During the 59 takeover uh, by Castro and, and the forces, um, um, I had the opportunity to meet Fidel Castro personally in 1959 when um, the world wanted to know who these guys were. There were indications that they were leftist people, but nobody really knew exactly who they were. And uh, they were invited to the United States. 
two months after they came from the mountains, and Batista took off, got out of the country. Uh, this, the army surrendered to these guys. Batista had tanks and chests and everything, and they surrendered to these guys because the whole nation was with the, with the Castro troops. Um, uh, what happened is that uh, they had a, an indication uh, internationally of their leftist tendencies, but they needed to know a little bit more. So they invited them to the United States, and uh, they caught them off guard because uh, they were not prepared for two months after the takeover in the country. You know, the, the bearded guys, los barbudos, as they call them. Two months after they take over the country, they are invited to the United States. How I got involved in this is another long story. I spoke English perfectly. I was aligned to the movement, and they had to select quick people to go. And I was there. <laughs> I've seen the photograph. Picture. I've yeah, seen the photograph. You sent that, that to me, yeah. yeah. And, and uh, what was happening there, Castro was extremely upset uh, because uh, Eisenhower didn't greet him. He sent Nixon to greet him, and he thought that I was an insult to them. Maybe it was true. But it was quite interesting, uh, the, the activities of those days. Um, Castro was a, a very charismatic guy, tall, big, strong, uh, capable of uh, changing people's minds in two seconds. He had the ability to do that. Many say Hitler did too. <laughs> but, but anyway... Um, um, that incident was uh, uh, an event in the United States with no major uh, implication other than uh, 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 Castro in the picture you have there. Castro uh, didn't realize where he was, and he started blasting the United States without realizing that he was in the United States. <laughs> it was humorous. That's what you so so I'm, I'm guessing face. you didn't translate that. No, no, it was, it was even better. You see in the picture, I have a grin in my face for what yeah. he said. He said, one day I'm going to destroy this F country. He said that, and he didn't realize he was in the This state. is in the U.S. <laughs> so, so, this guy behind him, one commander from the, from the mountains, uh, pulled him back and said, shut up, we are not in Havana, shut up. <laughs> Fidel asked me, you didn't translate that? So I gave him a military salute, and I said, no, I didn't. <laughs> that was the humorous part of that. So, George, as this developed, we've seen the movies, we've heard the, seen the documentaries, we've heard the discussions, read the information. What was going on behind the scenes on the Cuban side of things as the Americans said, turn those ships around, get the missiles out of Cuba, or we're going to go to war? What was going on uh, in, in, in Castro's world as you were watching and interpreting for him? Well, um, um, in, uh, interpreting for him was more in the United States on that trip that I mentioned to you, because you're in the missile crisis. No one could get near those guys. They were immersed in the military operation where it was upon them. Uh, the missile crisis were three events that led to the missile crisis. The explosion of a cargo ship in Havana in 1960 that they, Castro attributed that to the Americans, and there was new second one, the Bay of Pigs, a big mistake from the United States and Kennedy that was uh, incompetent in handling that operation. And that those things led to the missile crisis when missiles uh, were discovered by the U-2 uh, planes. Uh, the whole nation was in a state of alert. And uh, it, it was, uh, was not a long crisis, it was uh, maybe less than a month. And uh, uh, my personal opinion, I haven't read about this, but 
is that the Soviet Union used Fidel Castro big time. Young, charismatic guy, uh, volatile, with a <laughs> big mouth. And they saw the opportunity to have a base in the backyard of the United States because the Soviet, uh, uh, the United States had installed nuclear weapons in Turkey and Italy at the same time. So they saw this as a great opportunity to do that. Going back to the crisis itself, everybody was mobilizing the nation. Uh, fly, jets flying over everybody's head, uh, shooting every morning. Uh, and and, uh, and uh, you know what happened? Uh, they uh, were so close. Can I say you another opinion here, right? Sure. Kennedy, in my personal opinion, maybe he will be in disagreement with me, was a victim of a conspiracy from his own forces who did not forgave, did not forgive him for being hesitant in something so critical for the survival of the United States. Okay, can I, can, I, can I just, George... They never forgave him for that. Can I just take you back in, inside Cuba in 1962... And George and uh, and John Kennedy and Bobby Kennedy and uh, their administration were very f- firm with with Khrushchev, but it it took it took a time and there was and there was some negotiation at arm's length. There was attempts anyway. So did you did you have any any contact at all with Castro at that particular time, or was he just Roy, unavailable nobody, to you? Nobody had contact with Castro in those days. He was immersed in the military activity, and everybody was in military bases. I was in one of them, uh, 60, kilo, 60, 65 miles west of Havana, uh, where some of the nuclear boys were installed. And, uh, and uh, it was uh, uh, terrible moments of, of uh, wait and what happened, what's going to happen here. Uh, now, you, I'm sorry, George, but you'd gotten to know Castro. Yes, I got to know him because oh, very I, well. You interpreted for him. Did you have a sense? Did you feel like it was going to happen? Did you? Was your sense there's going to be a nuclear war here? Everybody thought it was going to be a nuclear war. Nobody thought for a minute that it was not going to happen because it was so uh, critical. And uh, although military bases and the military knew didn't know exactly what was happening on the other side, they knew what was happening. But everybody thought it was going to be the end of it. And uh, and that that gave <clears throat> that gave him the opportunity to say that uh, he declared to the world, "I am and quote I am a Marxist Leninist until the end of my life." That was declared in those days as well so, uh, during the Bay of Pig and Missile Crisis. But inside, basically, the military activity was brutal. A continuous okay. military movement. Uh, uh, horrible things that happened. What else can I tell you? Because fortunately, it didn't happen. Yeah. Now but, the Russians, George, the Russians would have been in charge, though, right? Castro the Russians were in charge. The Russians the were the bases, bosses. The bases where I was, at, Roy, you, you you could go inside the base, and there were uh, troops in green olive fatigue uniform, but they were blonde, blue eyes, and with an accent worse than mine. <laughs> Those were not Cubans. <laughs> They were in charge, absolutely in charge. Did you see Castro again after this missile crisis was over? Many times. I had this picture that I gave you that was given to me by the New York Times. I have a few copies, and I always have had it in my pocket in case I had a problem with somebody. 
uh, yeah, I saw him uh, probably many, many times because Roy, uh, when everything was over, everybody returned back to their normal life, went back to universities. I finished my career as an architect, and I became uh, a prominent architect with the government uh, in charge of uh, uh, several uh, national priority projects near the Sierra Maestra where the war was, and I was, and he used to fly in in helicopters. And I always had my picture with him, and he remembered me very well. We talked extensively. That's better than a, better than a driver's license. Uh, did he ever? Did he, George? Did he talk to you about about that October 1962? Ever later? Did he ever bring it up in conversation? No, he never talked about that again. Because first of all, Roy, please understand that he was extremely upset with the results of uh, the end of the crisis for one simple reason that it was negotiated directly between Khrushchev and Kennedy without his participation. He was so pissed off, and he had a reason for that. Everything was behind his back. And, and he said that publicly to the nation. We have been betrayed by the Soviet Union. He said that to the nation. So let me ask you this. We have, about, was, we have about two minutes, two and a half minutes left. I knew okay. the time was going to go by very quickly, okay. George, yeah. and we talked about that. What was life like um, for the average Cuban going forward after, after 1962 with Castro and the regime in charge, the dictatorship in charge under communism? What was life like? Well, in all reality, uh, uh, it, it was a miserable life. Communism hasn't been successful anywhere in the world. But but when when somebody's saying, like Castro, our revolution is green like the palm trees, <laughs> the opponents in the world call it like the watermelon is green outside and red inside. But it was a, a miserable country because communism, Roy, is nothing but a, a utopia. There's nothing. Everything... An imagined state of things in which everything is perfect. That doesn't work. The philosophers, Mark Engels and Lenin and those guys, guys that never had a job in their lives, became the philosopher trying to solve the problems of the world. However, I think we have little, very little time. Life is miserable. Communism is a police state where terror is the force that keeps power, and power corrupts, and we all know. Uh, yeah. They created comités of defense of the revolution in every corner of the city, in the entire country, to spy on the neighbors, to call the security forces. Um, they have those everywhere, um, and and you know you are you're, you don't talk to anybody for fear. Fear is in the air, and that's why they maintain power in any communist country. Fear, terror, and that's why they stay in power. Yeah, in the I, utopia created like that. I have absolutely but you know, one last, one last thing in, in the minute that I have. Communism was not created by Marx, Engels, uh, Lenin. No, no. Those philosophers that never had jobs did not create. They wrote about it. We created communism ourselves in the capitalistic society. We are the creators of that with one simple, simple word, greed. We have created all this turmoil in the world. The World Bank issued a report, and the report should pay, get your attention. The Ukraine war is set to cause the biggest price shock in 50 years, including food security. And the United Nations Food Price Index shows foods at their highest cost since records began being kept, guess when, 60 years ago. 
Professor Sylvain Charlevoix is back with us, the director of the Agri-Foods Analytics Laboratory and professor at Dalhousie University. Sylvain, each week, I think, we've covered it all. And then two or three days later, here's another story for us to get at. And thank you for making so much time for us. I really appreciate it. Well, my pleasure, Roy. It's always great to talk to you over the weekend. Let's talk about uh, the column that you have out today, your column. Before we get to the World Bank story, is Ottawa aware the world is on the brink of a food shortage? So what are you telling the federal government here? Well, in, in that column, I, I present numbers, uh, supported, of course, by the, by the FAO and uh, the World Bank. Uh, the number is quite startling. A hundred million people uh, will likely suffer from acute hunger or uh, will experience famine over the next several months as a result of what we're seeing uh, in Ukraine. And, of course, with uh, COVID's hangover affecting supply chain, uh, really, this year is not going to be easy to distribute food all over the world. And and also, uh, coupled with that problem is the production uh, of food. We're looking at um, major deficits as a result of uh, of an idle Ukraine, almost idle Ukraine, and, and section against Cuba, against uh, Russia, and uh, and that's going to be a problem for for the entire world. Now, Canada will not experience any famine. However, prices are going to go up. So, if you're if you do have food to buy around the world, including Canada, you're likely to pay way more in a few months from now. Yeah, you told us last weekend that the average Canadian family should be preparing to spend an extra $1,000 on food this coming year. And that, at least we all have it, but you're saying 100 million people around the world will suffer either significant hunger or famine. Exactly. So the uh, now, of course, uh, in uh, Europe, uh, there's going to be some issues in the Middle East as well. Uh, Northeast Africa as well. We're already seeing some civil unrest in some of those regions. So a lot of people are hoping that North America can deliver in, in our own production cycle, which is starting soon. Uh, if Mother Nature cooperates, we're still going to be in a deficit for wheat, corn, barley. And, and corn and wheat uh, basically represents about... Uh, 30% of all the calories consumed around the world. And so when you're short of these two very important cereals, you're in trouble. And that's exactly what's going to happen this year, regardless of what happens with the weather. Yeah, and you've told us on previous programs that you're not particularly impressed. I don't want to put words in your mouth. But my sense was that your feeling is, and we talked about this, that this federal government doesn't really appreciate the agricultural sector, and sometimes you get the feeling that they feel that the agricultural sector is just in the way of their climate objectives. I would uh, say so again, uh, and I've been quite—I've uh, been repeating the same message for the last few weeks, and I think I echo the sentiment of many Canadians uh, in terms of how disappointing the budget was. Uh, looking at global food security. I mean, there's another thing that governments can do right away is to actually reduce uh, premiums farmers pay in order to get insurance. Uh, premiums have gone up, and, and premiums have affected cash flow, and this is, exact, this is exactly what farmers 
need in order to plan more to become more productive. But in the budget a few weeks ago, there was nothing to make our agriculture more productive, which really will leave the entire world in the lurch as a result. You know, Sylvain, I mentioned to you last weekend that I received an email from a listener who said that for the first time in her adult life, she was going to the grocery store and she was getting food items off the shelf and then putting them back because the price had gone up so much she couldn't afford to buy the food. After that email, after I mentioned that to you, I received at least a dozen more very similar emails from people saying, I've never had this experience, but now I'm putting food back. And then... You know, you have the opportunity to help out at food banks you need to, but that speaks volumes. That kind of email speaks volumes because that's one person giving rise to maybe another dozen people sending a similar email, and you don't know how many people in our in our society, in this country, are doing exactly that, can't afford it, put it back. Exactly. Now, if I doesn't want to do anything about food security, that's one thing, but we all can do something about it, and that would be to reduce waste. Uh, in other words, Roar, if you're out there buying food for yourself or loved ones, make sure you eat it. And if you do, you actually lessen the pressure on food systems globally. You, you will. So you can actually make a difference as an individual by actually not wasting too much food. So if you go out and buy food, make sure you eat it. So developments in Ukraine, Russia says uh, they've struck Western weapons destined for Ukraine. There's also been um, talk about Mariupol. There have been some photographs, uh, the massive steel plant there. A few civilians who were hiding were allowed to leave. We'd heard that uh, the thousand or so Ukrainian soldiers who are there, many of them are very badly wounded. It's uh, a case that... Many of the civilians who are there with them are their family members, and so they're not going to surrender because they know what the Russians will do to their family members. But some civilians have been allowed out, I think a few dozen. And uh, Kharkiv, which is already in ruins, continues to be subjected to missile attacks by um, Putin's gang. Now, Western nations have said over the last few days, they pledge many billions more in armament for Ukraine, and uh, Canada's Parliament on Wednesday voted unanimously, give them credit for this, voted unanimously to declare Russia guilty of genocide in Ukraine. We'll be speaking with a genocide and war crimes investigator in a few minutes. He'll join us from Ukraine. But with us now is Ambassador Alexander Sherba, former Ukraine ambassador to Austria and Ukraine ambassador at large. The ambassador has spent some time with us over the last few weeks. Ambassador, thank you very much for taking the time. How encouraging is it to hear that a, a national government like the government of Canada uh, voted unanimously last Wednesday to declare Russia to be guilty of genocide? Well, it's important. It's important to call a spade a spade. Uh, and uh, we are immensely thankful to Canada for, for doing that because words count and political statements count. And what we saw in Bucha. Uh, is absolutely a genocide, absolutely horrifying. It uh, fulfills all uh, five, uh, uh, you know, grades of genocide that uh, United Nations uh, formulated. Um, so um, uh, what, what's shocking for me is that many journalists still uh, say uh, alleged war crimes in Bucha. 
uh, uh, there is nothing alleged about it. It's so obvious. And thank you, Canada, for being blunt and uh, and saying the truth. Yes, it it is. I mean, there's there's no mistaking what um, what has taken place, and it started with the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And Putin likes to say that it's Ukrainians who are doing this in order to give Russia a bad name. Russia does that all on, by itself. And I've said with tongue-in-cheek that the next thing that Russians are going to claim is that it's the Ukrainian army that invaded Ukraine. Now, the West uh, ambassador and NATO nations have said they're going to do more, sig- significantly more, the Americans particularly, as far as providing munitions and weapons is concerned. Is that enough? I mean, what, do you, what does Ukraine really need to be able to wage this fight, to be able to fight the Russians, you'll never be able to fight them on even terms because they have so so much, so many more soldiers, so much more military power, if you will, at their disposal. But what does Ukraine need to be able to fight to its maximum effectiveness? Well, uh, two things: uh, uh, sufficient uh, weapons, uh, munition, uh, on the one hand, and sufficient sanctions. The pressure on Russia, on the other hand, we are fighting the physical war. Uh, we expect our friends uh, worldwide to fight the economic war so that it hurts Russia. Um, so uh, right now, of course, the biggest question is uh, uh, the uh, oil and gas exports uh, uh, that Russia still uh, uh, does to uh, has flowing to Europe. Europe basically pays uh, 1 billion euros uh for, for Putin's war every day uh, because of this uh, oil and gas uh, exports. So uh, this is immensely important. Plus, uh, taking down uh, their key banks uh, through uh, taking them off SWIFT uh, bank, banking exchange system, this big, big bank that supplies Putin with uh, uh, money and Europe with gas, Gazprom Bank, and it's time to do something about it. This bank should go, go uh, off swift, too. Now, there's also been talk about, and I'm sure you're far more aware of this than me, but there's been talk, and particularly concern in Washington, that Russia will hold, that Putin will hold, fake referenda to claim the people of eastern Ukraine support the Russian invasion. Can you tell us anything about that? Well, I just read that... Uh, uh, of course, there are some uh, collaborators there, some traitors uh, who who, who uh, play Putin's game on the ground. Uh, but uh, the the number is not sufficient enough even to uh, put up enough uh, polling stations there. So it's just uh, uh, some dozens, and it's not enough. And uh, let alone people who would. Uh, vote or go to drop their ballots to this uh, uh, sham referenda. So, um, as I understand, it will be extremely difficult even uh, to create an appearance of a referendum. But, uh, well, Putin uh, actually doesn't care much about how he looks in the eyes of the world. Uh, For him, it's important how Russians see him, and they are absolutely manipulative. Uh, and and absolutely uh, uh, susceptible to manipulation. So um, uh, probably uh, it's not to exclude that he would still conduct the referendum, which 
would look much, much uh, less legitimate than even the uh, illegitimate referendum in uh, Crimea uh, um, eight years, uh, how many, uh, eight years ago, yeah. yeah. 2014. So there's been a lot of talk about the peace talks, and they're apparently not going particularly well. President Zelensky has said peace talks are very difficult for Ukrainians, Ukrainian people to accept because of the brutality of the Russian military. Do these peace talks have a really, um, do they have a future ambassador? Do you see anything positive coming out of this? Well, the problem is that uh, Putin doesn't uh, isn't interested in uh, peace and in peace talks. Uh, it's very obvious from uh, the rhetoric that he uh, applies. Uh, from the very beginning, uh, Zelensky kept uh, indicating that he might uh, uh, make a concession here, might make a concession there. What did we hear from Putin? Uh, all aims of the special uh, uh, military operation will be fulfilled. So uh, he's not really interested. He's not sending any people from his inner circle to these negotiations. It's just people uh, it have been who uh, never saw Putin in the last uh, two, three years. Um, so that's the problem. Putin has to be pushed. He, he has to be uh, forced into negotiations. And this would happen only when he feels that he is losing this war big time. And uh, it will, it will. I hope it will start uh, happening uh, when we push back uh, Russian uh, troops uh, to the uh, to where they were before February 24th. Uh, and uh, this will happen when uh, the heavy weapons that uh, our Western uh, allies have provided us will start uh, playing a role uh, on the battlefield. Okay, and when the West does whatever it can to shut down the Russian economy. Yeah, absolutely. That's, but uh, again, uh, uh, it will be probably summer when uh, Russians feel all the you know consequences of the sanctions. Uh, Putin has some you know gold uh, reserves uh, for uh, to, to to hold up for a while, uh, but it has to be done. It has to be pushed in that way um, because. Uh, uh, that's the only way when, uh, to give him to understand that he won't play the same game with the West as he was playing the last uh, 20 years. I uh, received an email from uh, my good friend, Professor Eric Cam, a very interesting piece about the fiscal and economic situation in Canada today. First day of May, we're heading into the spring, really heading into spring now. So it's our debt, our deficit, and... Uh, when do you think the last time was we experienced a surplus? Some will remember, others won't. And we also have the Bank of Canada threatening forced interest rate hikes. So how does the BOC make sure that they're forcing interest rate hikes? Is my question. How do they make sure that uh, the interest rate hikes won't push Canada into recession? Dr. Eric Cam is a professor of macroeconomics at Toronto Metropolitan University, formerly Ryerson University. How are you today, my friend? I'm doing very well, and congratulations on getting the name right. Yeah, well, you sent it to me. Yeah, I did. I did. It's actually the perfect name, Ryerson 
or we're not supposed to use that name anymore, was trying to find find a name that was vanilla, meant everything, meant nothing, offended nobody, and I think that they found it. Toronto Metropolitan University. That's right. TMU for short. Okay. Get a jacket. So let me uh, let me get on to the issues here. Um, it was a very interesting piece that you sent me that was written by a friend of yours, right? Yeah, that's right. Okay. I want to go through the pieces with you. But before we do that, heading into this new week and the new month, Tiff Macklin, the governor of the Bank of Canada, told Canadians to prepare for interest rates, and here's his quote, forcefully, if needed, end quote, to get inflation under control. What does that say to you? It says to me that we are in an inflationary spiral right now. I mean, it's one thing to be an inflationary phase where you see prices creeping up. But we all know if we've been to the grocery store or the gas station, we're not in a phase. We're in a spiral. Prices are kind of going up out of control. And Tiff Macklem is a very smart man. And I think he made his points this week very clear, Roy. He said there were three ideas that Canadians right now cannot forget. Inflation is high and it's only getting higher in the short run. Inflation has broadened to the number of goods being affected, and long-term inflation may even be higher than short-term inflation. And that is an absolute reverse from the Bank of Canada and the government's position mere weeks ago when they said that the long-term effects of these price increases would be transitory. So what you heard this week was some very honest, frank discussion from the Bank of Canada governor telling Canadians what to expect. And the answer is no relief, no time soon, Roy. Okay, so I'm the lay person. And when I listen to the Bank of Canada, when I listen to the governor of the Bank of Canada, over a period of time, talking about inflationary trending, and they get it wrong time and again, I start to pay even closer attention. And then when they talk about forcefully, if needed, interest rate hikes, I start to have some little shivers down my spine, worrying, or not maybe worrying, but having some level of concern that maybe these forcefully, if needed, interest rate hikes may lead to an unpredicted and undesired effect of overcooling the national economy, leading to recession. Am I uh, way off base? Uh, No, you're way on base, Um, only I'm not sure I'd use the word unexpected anymore. Listen, again, you know, my sources at the Bank of Canada tell me that rates are going up at least, at least 200 basis points in the next month or two. Now, that's 2%. And so there's no question that that's going to have a significant effect on borrowing. So is it going to bring down investment? Well, sure, it probably will. Is it going to bring down consumption? Yeah, it probably will. But you know what it's going to start to do at some point, Roy? And I think this is the heart of what you're getting at, is it's going to affect the one market that so far has been impervious, and that's the labor market. If you look at the labor market in this country, labor demand is very high. And one could argue that it's fueling the increase in gross domestic product right now. And you see, that's really the crux of this argument, is that if you are a lay person, frankly, if you're any person, and you pick up the Globe and Mail or any of our national newspapers, and you look at the numbers, well, you see unemployment very low, gross domestic product quite high and rising. So you would say things look pretty good. The problem is, is that we know that now that is a veil. Things do not look pretty good. What is coming on the horizon is nothing less than periods of stagflation. 
And that means gross domestic product falling and prices rising. What people have to understand now, with all due respect to my friends, is that the Bank of Canada and the government of Canada can't fix this quickly. There is no lever to pull. We're not a physics laboratory. And Canadians better expect this for the short, medium, and probably long term of a couple of years of prices only going in one direction, Roy. So I remember you, certainly last year, maybe a year ago, you first said stagflation on this program. And here we are, potentially. Yeah. Well, you know, it's better to be lucky than good. But the problem is, is that what I was able to do is just discern some of the macroeconomic variables and then just, you know, sometimes two plus two equals four. And again, let's not get into my constant degradation of our liberal government in Ottawa. But when you print that much money, Roy, when you put that much liquidity into the system, inflation is just inevitable. I mean, some people joke inflation is too much dollars chasing too few goods. Well, that's at the best of times, but we don't have too few goods, Roy. We have a supply chain problem. We hardly have any goods. I can tell you personally, my wife and I were shopping for cars this weekend. And while no one's gonna have a tag day for me, I can't afford the last car that we leased. It's just now out of our price range. And that's now more and more goods. So maybe I was lucky and I was early to jump on the stagflation bandwagon, but now there's nowhere to go. I mean, it, it, it is just going to happen. The only question is, is A, how long? And B, what is the government going to do about it? Yeah. I mean, I was looking at uh, cars as well the last couple of weeks, and particularly the last few days. I've been online just taking a look, thinking maybe it's time. Uh, maybe this is the time to pull the trigger and get something else. And honestly, I, I saw a price early this morning. I can barely get the words out. I said, what? S starts at what? And and that's where, that's where the search ended. It, it really was one of those moments. It starts at that number. And then you look at the used cars, and they're just as expensive. And my car, the one I'd be trading in, uh, has increased in value ridiculously and uh, but then what i would buy here we go would be exponentially more expensive so let me just slide sideways here get myself out of this hole i dug for myself the ratio of household debt to disposable income by the end of last year was at a record high and it's something i've talked about on the show for years so what does the bank of canada have to consider when household debt nationally is at record levels. Does that come into play at all when they look at their forcefully, if needed, interest rate hikes? Well, it does. It does because the, the last thing the Bank of Canada wants to do is trigger an all-out mutiny where people cannot afford their homes and their cars and their lives. And they know that they're perilously close to that. There's been periods in our history, Roy, where on average people have actually dissaved where on average for every dollar you've made, you've spent $1.20 and $1.30. We actually weren't doing bad in that ratio for a long time. And thankfully, in, a, in, a, in an ironic sense, all of the money that was given out during the pandemic made that statistic that you're talking about look a little bit better. But now that we've peeled that back, now that we've peeled it back, we know that insolvency is a very real problem. And you know, you and I have said how many times, one paycheck away. Well, some people are less than one paycheck away. They are less than one paycheck away. And now, so you couple that 
with anybody who's going to have to re-up their mortgage in the next year or two years, where the payments are going to skyrocket, or at the same time, that $750,000 mortgage they would have qualified for not two months ago, Roy, now they can qualify for about $575,000. And that's a big difference. So it's you're adding up all of these factors, including a debt to GDP ratio that's going up. And eventually you're going to say to me, come on, Eric, tell me something positive. Well, right now we've got some scarce positivity in the economy. And as I say, this this phenomenon of stagflation, the bank, the bank and the government can talk a good game, Roy, but there is nothing they can do in the short run to stop it. Those wheels were set in motion two years ago. So the last time we experienced anything similar to this would have been 1991. Yes. Yeah, exactly. When interest rates shot up to 21 percent and people walked let me just away add, from Let me their just home. add this. Let me just add this. So an entire generation has no no experience with this at all. Well, yeah. And, and you see, that's the problem is that we ask young people, really every people, but young people especially, to adjust their expectations. And, you know, the Bank of Canada, we know now in, in you know, retrospect is, is 2020. They played a very dangerous game. They dropped increases in the cost of living to nearly zero for the better part of a decade and a decade and a half. So you had a a generation or three quarters of a generation of Canadians look at houses and cars really not worrying about making those payments. But now, as we know, there's two problems with these payments. Number one, they're about to skyrocket. And number two, we are going to have a recession. We're going to have a decrease in the demand for labor that's going to cause an increase in unemployment. So my heart hurts for the people that are going to find themselves not able to afford their mortgage or not able to afford their car payment and at the same time out of work. And this is where the government and the bank are going to have to do some very skillful dancing to try to put the economy back on the right rails. So let's uh, let's look. Let me just grab a couple of numbers here and then ask you to run with it, please. So we talked about uh, the piece that you sent me, five hundred and seventy seven billion dollars in cumulative deficit over a four year period with this government. But they're not the only ones because both parties, as this piece points out, both conservatives and the liberals have uh, created uh, overspending at times. And if you look back to the early 90s, John Kretschmann, particularly Paul Martin, did an excellent job of managing the economy and uh, and bringing things, the house into order. The Harper conservatives uh, had some surplus and uh, really rode us into the uh, the world recession in 2009 in pretty good shape. So can you just pick it up and tell us, what do we need to know? Where are we headed? Make my head stop hurting. Roy, your head's not going to stop hurting, or at least it's not going to stop hurting for a while, because when you put all of the things that we've been talking about together, what you have is a private sector economy combined with a public sector economy that is very slowly going to ground to a halt. I mean, I've been saying before on your show that if you want to grow an economy, you have to target the private sector. But we know that over the past few years, the only thing to grow is the public sector. And while that does give kind of a false indication of a rise in the business cycle, you can rest assured that it is a house of cards and it's going to come back down the business cycle very quickly. As I said to you in the article I sent, look at things like interest on our debt. Right now, right, interest charges on our debt as a percentage of overall government spending is about 8%. 
But those are at historic low levels. You can rest assured that that number may jump to 20 or 25 percent if interest rates go up as fast as people say they're going to. So we have to take a, a piece of Paul Martin's playbook. And now people are having a stroke because they're saying, oh, my gosh, Eric's complimenting the liberals. But Paul Martin as one finance minister, Stephen Harper and his crew understood that the trick to getting an economy to run well is to have private sector growth, growth in consumption, growth in investment. Listen, Roy, you're never going to stop the business cycle. Okay, what goes up must come down. It is just a rule in economics. The trick is, can you keep the highs not too high and the lows not I'm still there too low. And the only way proven to do that throughout time. Yes, I'm here. You hear me? Hey, we lost you for a few seconds, but you're back. Oh, I'm sorry. All I was going to say, and I'll say it quickly, is that we've got to work with the private sector. We've got to stop with the giving away all of these billions of dollars. We've got to stop forgetting that we have a debt and a deficit to pass on to future generations. When people like the, the, the modern monetary theorists say it doesn't matter it does. It does because of the debt on the debt. And that is compound debt. And it's unhealthy. Right now, Roy, I'm being verbose. There's just a lot of unhealthy going on. And there's nothing that the bank or the government can do about it in the short run. Now, I don't want you to stop. I'm glad you're talking. I'm glad you're going on with this and explaining to us. When you talk about 20 to 25 percent, that scared the hell out of me. Um, and and when we look at the, uh, the really the different layers of debt, federal, we might as well add provincial, and then we we look at uh, deficit, and then we look at the uh, the financial reality for for Canadians uh, with the household debt uh, at record highs. This is really this is really alarming because it's dangerous. I, it's dangerous, I, how, how right? you and you know, this? and you know what? What gets us out of this? What gets us out of this right now is time and and diligence. The, the interest rate rises are inevitable. There's nothing we can do. We've got to do something to counteract the billions of dollars of CERB they gave away. So in the short run, if you're, there is nothing. Eric, if you're the, let me elevate you uh, from Bank of Canada governor. Let me give you both positions, all three of them. Bank of Canada governor, finance minister, and prime minister. And you have the, you have carte blanche to get things working properly what do you do? The first thing I do is get rid of the carbon tax. The first thing I do right now is ensure that families will maintain their homes and their livelihoods. And I put money into their pocket. That's increasing disposable income. That's decreasing taxes, especially the ones that are going to do nothing, namely the carbon tax. That alone would put one or two thousand dollars extra into everybody's pocket who not just drives a car, but heats a home, Roy. We've said it before. There's no time right now to worry about anything other than people and insolvency. And the best way to help that is through disposable income. It's through disposable income, no other way. So my number one thing I would do, and I know I sound like other guests you've had, is scrap the carbon tax and get disposable income back to levels where I no longer worry about such a ridiculous number of people being one paycheck away from the street. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.